Welcome to the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Luhr, and I'm excited to have someone all the way in Santa Monica, California on the line here today, Greg Economou. Welcome to the podcast, Greg. It's good to be here, man. Yeah, no, awesome. And uh, you're in a beautiful part of the world there. Um, it's later sort of afternoon, evening for you, morning, my time here in Malaysia. Um, but before we get into uh, the fun stories and the amazing career you've had, uh, let me just sort of give a quick introduction on yourself, um, and then we'll go into, as usual, the, the details. So Craig uh, started his, uh, his career in the world of sports as a player, um, professional basketball player in Athens in Greece, uh, and we'll, we'll hear about it more later. Um, he spent a couple of years then in, in college sports um, in, in various roles. Uh, started your own company um, as SMS Branding, which was eventually sold to SFX. Um, started another company with Brand Thing. Um, spent a couple of years in the NBA. Was met in Square Garden, uh, the Guggenheim Media. Um, so very big companies um, and very interesting experiences, which we'll dig into. And right now, you are the founder and uh, and partner in uh, Game One, which is where we're going to get to at the end um, and the amazing things you guys are doing there. So, but before we get to that, um, let's go back to uh, how it all started. Um, Craig, take it away. Yeah, you know, it's it, uh, when I was in college, I played basketball at the University of Connecticut, and uh, and I went overseas to play. And I think the the one trigger point I had is after my first season playing in Athens, I came back and and I uh, I took an internship with who at the time was Fleet Bank um, in the commercial lending department and uh, and it was uh, eight an eight or ten week internship before I had to report back to training camp for the next season and it was possibly the longest ten weeks of my life where <laughs> you know I I just I I couldn't stand not you know, being around sports, talking about sports, you know, and then it, it became, you know, an obsession of mine that once I finished playing that I wanted to go back and actually spend my days, you know, working in some capacity in sports, whether that would have been coaching or working in the business side of sports. And um, I've been really blessed to have been able to do that over these many years. Yeah. So you, you spent three years uh, in Athens playing, right, from what I can see. Yeah, so I spent uh, three years playing ball, and then uh, I actually injured my back and needed to have back surgery. Um, I, I did the back surgery and with the intent to rehab um, and come back and play because if if you're ever looking for a job and somebody's going to pay you to play something, then you should take that job because it's uh, it's great to to be able to uh, to get compensated for doing things that you love. But uh, I you know I, ne I never got fully better where I felt confident enough to go play at that level anymore. And I had been rehabbing at UConn where I went to school, and I ran into the athletic director there one day and said, "Look, I don't know if I'm going to go back. I, I'd love your support in trying to." Find find a job. I want to really work in sports. I'd love to work, you know, at, at ESPN or somewhere like that. And uh, his name was Lou Perkins, big, big time AD. And he said, uh, well, why don't you work here? And I said, oh, that'd be great. But how do I do that? And he's like, well, you're hired. Um, I want you to be a fundraiser in our athletic department. And so literally hired me, you know, without an interview, without a resume. And, uh, and I spent my first year and a half or so uh, raising money for the athletic program at UConn. Right. And that's my, my my entree point into the sports marketing world. I love that, uh, and I, I we'll get we'll get back in a minute. But I, I wanted to just jump one more time back to to Athens. First of all, you obviously Greek descent, American uh, somehow that maybe brought you back to your roots. Uh, and playing basketball in the in the late eighties in the in Europe, um, it's obviously a bit different than now. I mean, how did you get there, and and, and you know what 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 drove you there to to go yeah. and and go back to let's say your roots. I mean, I was one of the few Greek Americans that w was playing Division One basketball at the time, and so right. after my junior year, um, there was a, a, a all star team of Greek American players that went to play the the pro teams in Greece. And hmm. uh, so I went on a, I think it was a two or three week tour, and we played probably ten games or so, and I played quite well, and uh, and so. A lot of the, you know, a lot of the teams then started reaching out to me, which, you know, I, I didn't even consider that, you know, I wasn't even thinking about that. I thought, mm -hmm. look, I'll go to college, I'll get a degree, maybe I'll go to law school. And, 
you know, then I got into my senior year and I started getting, you know, I, I started getting, uh, you know, having conversations with some of the Greek teams and, um, I hired an agent and ultimately, you know, chose to play for Olympiacos, which, you know, was the effectively the, you know, the, the man United or the yeah, New York Yankees big team, Absolutely. And, you know, and it was, it was an extraordinary experience because not only, you know, was I able to play a sport I loved and get paid for it, but I was able to really travel, um, you know, the world to a degree. I mean, I probably traveled to 20 different countries in that time, you know, playing different games and competitions and the context and kind of background you get from that experience is, is priceless, truly. I can imagine. And, you know, and, and Greeks are pretty passionate about their basketball too, right? You'd be, it was a pretty good yeah. crowds there, right? Yeah, it was an incredible uh, dynamic. They, you know, the Greeks have always been very, uh, you know, have always played really good basketball. In 87, the year before I got there, uh, they actually won the European Championship. They beat the Soviets uh, in in uh, the, the Euro uh, Championships. And I think Nick Gallus, who was the great Amer Greek-American, but great European player, I mean, one of the greatest of all time, he... Uh, I think he had 57 or 60 points in that final game. And it was, you know, it, 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 you could see, see the fervor and the, and the passion that the fans had. And some had it, you know, they were knowledgeable of basketball and some were just loyal to Olympiacos. So they would just come out and chant, you know, like they would at a soccer game or, or what have you. And it was, uh, it was really incredible to see the, the, you know, the energy and the, you know, the side we would, you know, our home games would have 16, 17,000 people, yeah, you know, at Mezzo. Um, it was really great uh, to to be a part of. I love that, and that's a great, yeah, awesome story and a good good way to warm up here. But now we're going to jump into basically what I would consider sort of your first uh, big hit here: uh, SME branding uh, yep. in the mid '90s uh, in New York City. Um, somebody coming out of your your couple of years there was in the universities there. Um, and again, what I read here, it's, it was a boutique consumer product packaging firm, which doesn't sound very sexy. Uh, and you yeah. turned this into a very cool sports branding consulting firm. Yep. I want to know more about it. Well, it was funny. I went, I, I took a job after UConn, uh, fundraising at UConn. I took a job as the associate AD at, uh, SUNY Stony Brook, which is one of the state university of New York, you know, big, big 25,000 student institution. Mm -hmm. And they, they were, uh, the, the SUNY system had decided about the same time that the California system came into play to play division three sports, not division one sports. And fast forward to, you know, to, uh, you know, 1990, 1991, they realized after 30 some odd years that they had made a mistake strategically that they just didn't have the quality and the name recognition of having division one sports. So they, they decided to elevate their program. And so they, I got recruited to go down there and be the number two person in the athletic department at a relatively young age. Um, and something very unique happened, which led me into becoming a brand builder is I got to the school and the nickname of the school was Patriots. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, okay, that's cool. And my first week on the job, I was, I was seeing a bunch of Patriot logos and hearing people talk about the Patriots. And I picked up a local newspaper and it's had a headline about the Patriots. I'm like, oh good. We, you know, there's a lot of buzz and there are people reading the newspaper And then I realized that they were talking about the local high school, which was also named the Patriots. Okay. So, so I, 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 I started to do my own, you know, kind of in-person research and realized that Ward Melville High School, the Patriots of Ward Melville, were, was one of the most successful athletic programs in all of New York State. And that I would never be able to supersede them at, at Stony Brook if, you know, if I was called the Patriots. So I went to the athletic director and to the president of the, of the school and said, can we consider changing the name of the mascot? And so they said yes, if they thought, because my job was to bring in new revenues to support a move to Division One. And so, you know, I ended up putting together a committee and putting together a brand strategy. And I ended up hiring SME, who is a consumer product packaging firm, to help lead me through the process. They had not done sports before, so I was their first sports client. Right. Um, and I met them because one of the Stony Brook uh, alum who was on my committee's brother owned SME, who became my partner. And we built the, the, the what we, we came up with a new name, Sea Wolves. We did a great uh, brand identity program, logos and everything else. And we got an enormous amount of um, a, a coverage and acclaim for this brand building exercise that we did, which kind of ignited a spark for SME 
Um, but Ed was a consumer product packaging guy. He wasn't a sports guy. So he bugged me for two plus years to come join him as a partner in the firm, which I eventually did. Um, and that's how my branding career started as a client. And then I learned, you know, I learned the business and we did, we originally did a handful of, of colleges like I did. And then we got a handful of pro accounts and started working with the leagues. And we did a couple of expansion teams like the Toronto Raptors and, and, you know, some, some of those. And before we knew it, we were, you know, two or three years into this and we weren't doing any consumer product packaging. We were doing hundreds of, of, you know, sports branding assignments at any given year. And I think over the course of my time there, we did about 1500 overall, you know, from all over the world at some point, you know, in many different countries and became the de facto leading branding firm for sports and in, in the world, which was unexpected and incredible at the same time. And, and when you say it was always linked to some type of rebranding or creating a, a unique branding environment for sports platforms or sports IP yeah. owners, or that that that's what the firm was doing, right? Yeah, at that point, you know, there were either teams that um, had been either misbranded or poorly branded or just had tired branding, and so we would do a lot of rebranding. We would we would take existing um, you know programs and kind of go back in and and change them. Some in some cases it was new branding, right? It was an expansion team, or it was a new property, okay. or a new business, and what have you. And we would start from scratch, you know, naming and and identity and strategy and all those kinds of things. Um, so it was a uh, it was a little bit of everything. You know, we we did teams, we did tons of teams, colleges. Um, we did even athletes. We did identities for Vander Holyfield and Tiger Woods oh, wow. and people were you know that were um you know looking to establish themselves as brands i love it i love it i'm a brand guy too and i i love that uh, i want to talk more about it but uh i i also want to you know keep uh, keep our pace here um yep. so the company eventually then was sold to sfx uh hopefully you yep. made some nice money there uh, tell me a bit about, about that part Yeah, we, you know, it was funny because we, you know, we had built this thing up and by the late nineties now we, you know, we were, we were 30, 40 people in, we had accounts all over the place and, you know, we were cranking along and one day I got a phone call, um, from a, from a different entity than SFX and they said, Hey, we're interested in acquiring you. And, you know, I, I had never been through a merger or acquisition, you know, I, I had no idea how that worked. And so I, I made a couple phone calls and one of one of our friends of the firm was a big M&A guy and he introduced me to a young M&A guy at the time uh, who's also become one of my best friends in the world now. And Pete, his name is Pete Major. Pete helped us kind of frame the company business plan, you know, re really shape the, the business model. And then, you know, we started negotiations with this one firm and we actually called SFX to try to, because they were in a buying spree to just create leverage so we could negotiate a better deal with the, with the ad agency that was trying to buy us. And once we called on David Falk and his team, mm. they were like, no, 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 that, like we want to buy you. And then we had a little bit of a, you know, kind of a, not a bidding war, but just, a, you know, we had some, some activity going on and, and we ended up uh, packaging it up and selling it to SFX with, with, in the roll up of um, all the sports entities that they did. And then we were there for maybe a year. And then uh, SFX made the strategic decision to focus exclusively on music. So uh, they turned around and bought most of the sports agency owners back out of their deals. Um, so we, we stayed for a year. And then ultimately what that became was Live Nation. So, right. uh, you know, so it was a uh, you know, an interesting process to go through at a relatively young part of my career and understand how, you know, money raising and mergers and acquisitions happen and how they work. And so it was a good lesson to learn early. Yeah. And it's interesting that uh, obviously your, your last role was again back at Live Nation with Ticketmaster, right? So you've really yeah. gone full circle there. Full circle. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Um, now, well, we're moving on here. Um, so you left, obviously, then, uh, you know, I'm assuming as typical entrepreneurs, when you get stuck in a big end agency, there's a point in time you realize that you need to be back on your own here. So uh, I guess you started BrandThink. That, was that sort of a SME 2.0 version, um, more or less similar, something similar or very different? No, it was an offshoot. Like at, what, what had happened at SME is we, we started – when we started doing the branding work, uh, it was very art heavy in the beginning. Like we were doing a lot of logos. We were doing a lot of uniform designs. We were doing a lot of graphics, uh, advertising campaigns. 
Um, and what we what we wanted to do to continue to separate ourselves from our competition was be better, you know, strategists. And so we hired um, one of the leading strategy developers in branding, a guy named Bob McCready. And Bob came in and taught us kind of the principles of writing, you know, brand strategies and business plans. And so my role over over the years at SME started to evolve into writing a lot of strategies for clients where my partner at O'Hara was the chief creative officer. And so I would go into these properties and I would write these, you know, in, in some cases, elaborate or intricate business plans or brand strategies. And it became a passion of mine. And I started to realize that um, that you know, the, the strategy part had mu much more impact than just what the brand looked like. You know, it was, it affected every different aspect of the organization. So when, after we sold SME and then we're, we're bought out when SFX was buying everybody back out, uh, I, I didn't want to go back into the same exact thing that I did, but I wanted to go into writing strategies for clients that would ultimately impact their entire business. And so BrandThink was, you know, was was a pure strategy and consulting shop, almost a, like a, a mini Bain or a mini McKinsey, but specifically for sports with expertise around, you know, the 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 the, co the core elements in sports, whether it be branding, marketing or, you know, onto you know, operations and uh, and ticket sales and sponsorship. And we had clients that were across the paradigm, you know, many, many different kinds of strategies we were writing from, you know, feasibility studies to org structures to better ticket sales strategies to brand strategy in positioning. Um, and it, we went for five years and, you know, had a, a ton of A-list clients and we found a nice little niche. Um, and uh, it was it was really fun because it was, you know, it was still mine. It was still my baby. So, yeah. you know, I got, I got to nurture it every day. I love it. I love it. Well, but somehow you ended up getting a call from the NBA. I don't know, David Stern or Adam Silver, who called you and, uh, and you and you ended up uh, and doing some work with these guys. So uh, how did that all happen or what we and what were you doing exactly? I had done in BrandThink, I had done some major uh, strategy work for a handful of the teams and particularly one team. And, and the team got a lot of acclaim, in fact, uh, you know, acclaim in, in and outside of the sport and, and uh, for the strategy that they had employed. And David, you know, was in a league meeting and, and was asking the team president, like, you know, uh, you know, you guys have done such a great job. How'd you do it? And he and he said, look, we work with this with this firm, BrandThink, and, you know, their CEO is a, a really sharp guy and blah, blah, blah. And next thing I know, and, my and phone which team was that uh, uh, the Detroit Pistons. We right. were we, we had done a, a big rebranding of the Pistons and, and kind of a lot of strategy work and how they should implement kind of that brand across every different department in the company. And so it, it, what we did influenced every single touch point. Um, and when Tom Wilson, who was the CEO of the Pistons, uh, said to David, like, you know, this guy really understands branding, marketing, and he understands sports. And so David called me literally out of, you know, out of the blue. I had never, you know, I'd met him before just in mm -hmm. social settings, but you know, and he said, I want you to come work for me. And I thought, I thought honestly that he wanted me to write him a proposal and do some consulting for the league. Uh, <laughs> and he's, I don't know, we're creating a new position that's akin to the chief marketing officer. And we haven't had one in many, many years since Rick Welts left. You know, we want to, we want to, you know, you know, consider you for that position. And I, you know, I flew to New York a couple of days later and he offered me the job on the spot. And so, um, you know, I, I, I I was at a crossroads because I loved my my agency and we were doing such really incredible and, and and impactful work. But, you know, the chance to actually work for David and Adam and, you know, and try to jump into the NBA, which was frankly at a little bit of a of a of a of a place where, you know, they had, had the fight in Detroit and they were, you know, kind of coming out of that and trying to figure out, like, what what do they need to stand for? Where do they need to go in the process? And, uh, you know, it just felt like a really great opportunity to make a, a big, you know, kind of big imprint. And so I, I decided to take and looking at the years, is this around, if I uh, vaguely remember, at the same time sort of when Jordan had his last year, which is obviously the movie where, where the, the series we've all been watching? Is that about right? Jordan was done already. He was done already. Okay. It was the beginnings of LeBron, you know, Dwayne Wade, LeBron, um, you know, Iverson was still there. Um, you know, Kobe was, was, you know, was in, it was in full bloom. Um, and it was, you know, it was, 
um, you know, to me, the big challenge going into the NBA was it was really a positioning challenge. You know, it was really one of, of um, you know, thinking about kind of what the mission of the league needed to be at the time and, and how to reposition the brand, um, you know, in a different way than, than it had been done. And, you know, and thankfully, David, you know, David and Adam were, you know, the two most progressive and incredible mentors, teachers, executives, uh, friends that, you know, you could ever imagine having, even though it was sometimes difficult to work with Dave because he was very demanding, but, um, you know, but, but they were open to the exploration and it was a incredibly collaborative process of rethinking how the league needed to be positioned. And we went through the process and, you know, rewrote the mission statement to be much more, uh, human and real and, and digestible, um, and tangible. And, and then, you know, following that, we, we really worked hard to reposition the brand more around the idea of the mission statement, which was to put basketball at the center of everything we do to be the, the guardians of the game, to be socially respond, the most socially responsible sports organization in the world. And, you know, and, and David lived it and Adam lived it and they still live it, you know, and it was great. It was an honor and a, and a privilege and to, to be part of kind of the, the thinking around, you know, what, uh, you know, what has become, you know, really embedded in, in, uh, you know, in the, the DNA of the NBA. Yeah. I mean, and, and your branding, I guess, uh, career then continued, right? You, you obviously worked with a particular team for a couple of years then as well. Um, the, the Charlotte Hornets, right? Although yeah. it's, what, yeah. it's called the Bobcat sports entertainment company, but it's the Charlotte yeah. Hornets as the team. Is that correct? Yeah, so it was the Bobcats when they, you know, the Hornets moved to New Orleans from Charlotte, and then the the, the league yeah, right. put a, a new team in called the Bobcats. And the Bobcats had been in existence for five years, had struggled on the court, had struggled mightily off the court, um, were were really um, last in the league in many different categories off the court in terms of the business, whether it were ticket sales or sponsorship. We didn't have a naming rights partner. We didn't have a really terrific TV deal, and so. Um, but Michael Jordan had come in as a as a uh, as a minority owner and okay. uh, as the head of basketball. And, you know, from my connections with David Falk and, and, and Curtis Polk and Esty Portnoy, um, they knew, you know, they knew me from those days at, at SFX. And so they were looking for somebody to run the day to day operations of the team. And they knew I was at the league. And um, and so I I, uh, I took the job and. Uh, you know, it was an incredible challenge um, because you are on the court product. My, you know, I was there for three full seasons and uh, the best year we had, I think, was 31 and 51. So, you know, we were dealing with a substandard product on the court. You know, our players were, you know, great guys, but we didn't have all stars. So there was, you know, the idea of marketing around star players was not, you know, was not feasible because we just didn't have all stars. So it was really about, you know, how, how do we get in and, you know, position this thing around th this is this is a, a, a civic um, initiative. This is about the city of Charlotte. We lost one team. Let's not lose another. Let's right. figure out how to rally and support this thing. Let's figure out how um, to, you know, ultimately uh, put ourselves in position um, to, to, to build a successful infrastructure so that when the team did succeed, that they were able to maximize. And so we, you know, we ended up selling the naming rights to Time Warner Cable. We, are, we, we sold the, the uh, broadcast rights to Fox, which got us back into the kind of economic stand, standing we needed to be in from those kind of core pieces. Um, we more almost doubled our ticket sales. We, drew, we almost doubled our sponsorships. Um, so it was, you know, it was the hardest job from the perspective of we were working with very little, you know, resources and assets because we were a small market team with not many wins. But, you know, what, the thing I think I'm most proud of there was not the not the success um, that we had business wise, but the team that I built, Mike Toman, um, you know, uh, um, Nick Barlidge, uh, Jake Reed, um, all these, you know, great all stars, Michael Thompson, um, Carter Ladd, Chris Marciani, all these guys went on and they're all, you know, I mean, Mike Toman's the president of legends and Nick Barlidge is the president of the Cavaliers and Jake Reed is the president of Sporting KC. And, you know, I, I proved myself, I think, as a good GM, so to speak, where I was out 
recruiting young talent and trying to find and motivate people to do a good job. And, you know, and, and, uh, you know, I was able to through whether it was skill or luck or a combination thereof, you know, put a, a, a team together that was, you know, phenomenal and, you know, it helped turn around the, the, you know, the, the, the franchise from the, from the business perspective. And, and it was a lot, lot to be proud of. I love it. I love it. And, and the part I like as well is that, I mean, you clearly come from the sort of, let's say, branding side from at least, you know, what I, what we talked about just now, what I can see here in your, in your career path. Um, but you are slowly then, and, and your next role in, at Mass Square Garden was much more focused on the revenue side, right? So you became a sales guy, uh, which is what I am too. So I, I say this with all affection. Um, you know, but, you know, so how did that transition go from really being more branding, consulting to now saying, look, we got to go find the money here? Yeah, I think, you know, part of it was, you know, my uh, my responsibilities in Charlotte were across the board marketing and sales. And despite having a lot of obstacles in a small market and, you know, some difficulty, we did we did do some big deals. We you know, we did, you know, bring in a big naming rights partner at a, at a really great, um, you know, at a really great deal for the team. We brought in a media rights partner. We, we, you know, we grew, we grew the business and I think I was getting more known, you know, I always felt like a sales guy, but I was usually selling for myself, right? I was selling my agency services. Right. I was selling in like an idea to the commissioner or what have you. And in this case, it was like, I had now finally the scorecard of, Hey, are you getting the deals done? And I think I was recognized in the league as somebody who could not only think about kind of the strategy and the positioning and branding, but somebody who could actually manifest that into into success revenue wise and so when the msg thing came along you know it was it was the chance to go work for my hometown team right i grew up in new york and grew up idolizing the knicks and rangers and and so it was a chance to kind of come home so to speak and also what intrigued me about it was no matter what kind of deal you're doing you're adding you know one two or three zeros to the end because of the size of the market and the size of the brands (laughs) and you know, and to be in the middle of multi, multi-million dollar deals was super exciting. And so, yeah, it was a almost, a, you know, the 360 of like I started as a pure brand guy and, you know, and now I'm, you know, s- s- sitting in a chair that uh, is overseeing a bunch of revenue lines and had very little impact on the brand positioning of, of the, the actual property and the teams. But, you know, it was it, it was it was equally as awesome, just different. Was uh, Scott O'Neill there at that time? Was he already the the president? Scotty was president of the sports group and Mike Bear was president of the media group. And when I got there, Jay Marciano was president of the entertainment group and he left and to go to to go to uh, AEG and Melissa Orman took over and and I worked for all of them. Like I I worked to to drive revenue for each of the three major divisions um, working across all the venues. So we had seven venues at the time, three networks. So we were working, you know, we had consolidated it. it they had, when I got there, there was a very decentralized revenue model where each department was responsible for their own, you know, their own revenue generation. And I convinced the CEO, Hank Ratner to rethink that and, and consolidate everything and create some economies of scale and some expertise in certain areas. But we brought that all into kind of a central place and, uh, and and then my responsibility was to kind of fill the 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 coffers of the three divisions and so yeah, awesome. worked across them yeah I, and when scott is a friend as well and white fellow white pure um he has been on the podcast so as david david uh falk so uh, yeah we we got a, a good group of people here already it's, and how you work who you work with over the years it's uh, fantastic um, now, then you ended up with another big name, the Guggenheim Media uh, Company, I guess, part of uh, Dick Clark production here. Um, so you're going from a venue now you're going into content business uh, and yeah. entertainment. Uh, how did that jump happen? Well, I had, uh, you know, I had been good friends with Rick Welts over the years and, you know, he had, he had gotten the job at Golden State and I had, I had worked with, uh, Peter Goober's, uh, Mandalay outfit, you know, when I was at SME. And, uh, so, uh, when, when they had taken over and they were contemplating their new arena, which ended up being the Chase Center in, in San Francisco, uh, but before they even knew kind of where it was going to be and how it was going to be, we were in the midst of a major, you know, renovation or transformation 
transformation at Madison Square Garden. Right. And we had an, an incredible job, um, you know, monetizing the, the new building, like figuring out how to, you know, create products, uh, whether they be ticket products or, or premium products or sponsorship assets. Um, and we, we did an, an enormous kind of changeover to, you know, our, our, our revenue model by, by creating a whole bunch of new assets. And so, uh, Rick and Peter wanted to pick my brain and they, you know, they, we spent a, a, a good, a good amount of time together talking about it. They made some visits to New York. I, I, I set them up talking to different folks within, within the, you know, kind of the revenue streams at the garden, talking to the architects and everyone else, just so they could start to get their ideas together. And I, I really had a hankering to move to LA. My whole family over the years had relocated to Arizona and I was the lone soldier back on the East coast with my, with my family. And so I really wanted to move to LA and Peter had started asking me if I would be interested in coming to work for Guggenheim. Um, and you know, I would be based in LA and they own the Dodgers and Dick Clark and Prometheus global media, which was billboard magazine and Hollywood reporter and a few others. Yep. And, uh, and you know, ultimately he, you know, he came, he came at me with a good offer and I, I really wanted to relocate, which I'm, I'm really blessed and love, you know, I love it out here. And so, um, you know, I jumped into that, but it was a, di a totally different kind of job. You went from a facility base, you know, team based operation to, you know, we're, we're, we own, you know, they owned a team, but they, uh, and a, and a facility, but the crux of my job there was to build a branded content studio um, and really leveraging the assets that that they already had. They were going to look to buy more assets over time. They, they eventually didn't buy too many other ones, but um, but we were able to build a, a really progressive and one of the first uh, branded content studios of its kind. You know, 2013 branded content really even wasn't a wasn't even a phrase yet. Mm. Um we, you know, we started figuring out like, hey, there's some, you know, there's some staple shows on networks and and on other places that we could create a whole bunch of um, companion content or shoulder programming, and we could package that and sell it to alternative distributors and you know make more money. And it was not that different than what you'd see in you know on ESPN. I mean, I my model I kept saying to the team was college game day. You know, it used to be. A football game, you know, would you know, would the ABC feed would come on at one o'clock, and you'd get five minutes of an intro, and and then the game would kick off at one o five, and then when it was over, it would go to a boxing match, you know, and <laughs> and and then you know somebody at ESPN said, hey, we should actually talk for three hours before the game, and then we should talk at halftime, and then we should talk for three more hours after the game, right. and we should sell all that ad time to somebody, and we'll make twice as much money as we do normally, and so I just took that model and said, look. Let's go find places, spaces. Let's go find things to talk about. Let's go develop a whole different kind of set of content and, you know, and then get brands to pay for it all. And we went from really starting effectively from scratch to a point where we were doing an enormous amount of multi, multi million dollars per year in brand, you know, in brand you know, support against, uh, these assets that we had built. And, uh, you know, it was, it, it was super interesting. I love making content. It was my, it was, it was what really led me to what I'm doing now. Cause mm -hmm. I learned kind of how to, you know, how do you conceptualize it? How do you package it? How do you pitch it? How do you win it? How do you execute it? I was just doing it at a, a more of a, of a short form, uh, format than, than what we're doing now at game one. But, um, but it was, it was an incredible lesson. The only thing I didn't love about it was we, I, we, I was the least amount of stuff I was doing was for the Dodgers. So I was effectively, you know, moving out of sports further and further as we were doing more, you know, Hollywood oriented or music industry oriented content. Mm -hmm. And I, I felt like I love what I'm doing, but I, I miss my tribe. You know, I miss the people that I, I've grown up with in this business for 20 plus years and the people that I have developed incredible relationships with and, and my passion, you know, my passion was always as a, as a former athlete, as somebody who had worked in front offices for many years, I just, you know, and, and then by that point had, you know, three athletic sons that were playing everything. I wanted to get back into sports. And so when Jared Smith at Ticketmaster called me and said, hey, I need somebody to run the sports division and really think differently about the ticketing business, it was appealing to me. If only for like, I mean, I like the other parts of it, but I really like being back in the industry again and being able to to build something, you know, with my people. So it was, uh, you know, it, it was uh, the the Guggenheim Media was probably the most important job I had because it led me to to do what I'm doing now. I know, yeah, I can see that easily, absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah, very interesting. And so, so Ticketmaster, in a sense, was just a little bit of a step back into the world of sports. Um, I, you know, you were the head of sports there. I mean, obviously, Ticketmaster does. You know, I don't know. They, they would do more tickets for entertainment than sports, or what? What's the breakdown there, roughly? Yeah, it's it's uh, you know, the, it, it's 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 similar, right? The the size of the the scope of the uh, of the business in terms of the amount of tickets, the 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 music division probably makes more money only because a lot of the a lot of the way they did their accounting, a lot of the 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 events in a sports venue that were musical would be counted as a music uh, a music um, uh, account. So, but you know, for me, it was great because my you know my real uh, passion uh, when I got to Ticketmaster was to figure out how to reposition the brand um, and not just from a B to B stand a B to C standpoint, but also from a B to B standpoint because. Mm-hmm. You know, Ticketmaster had been perceived as a software company, and sometimes, you know, sometimes there's if you have a problem with your software, then you you know you get you get a demerit, and if you're not building merits on the other side, you know, it it, it starts to get a little uneven. And so my my job was to try to figure out like how do I actually bring more to the table than just the software, and how do I bring consulting? How do I bring kind of data and analytics? How do I bring more media and marketing power and, and and, and really help these properties in in the full cycle of selling what they need to sell, not just in the I, I operate your software. And so that that part was super entrepreneurial. I got a lot of room to run with that. Um, it was we were doing some really incredible and game changing things for the company, which was which was great. Um, but you know, I met Basil along the way, and Basil, my partner, Basil Iwanek, my partner. Who's, a, a super prolific movie producer in Hollywood. He's done, you know, he owns the John Wick franchise, the Cario franchise. He did right. a star in Wind River. You know, he, he did so many incredible movies and we became friends and we started talking about, you know, sports content. And I was giving him my perspective, having done the Guggenheim thing mostly for entertainment properties and then saying, look, I'm surprised that the sports industry has not rallied enough yet and doesn't really maximize or optimize their opportunities as much as they do. And from his perspective, he was getting a lot of demand from distributors for more sports content. And we just kept putting our heads together, um, you know, sometimes socially and sometimes strategically. And, you know, and then ultimately I I was like, I I really want to be a storyteller. Like I want to get into, you know, the, the content creation game again, but in, but with Basil, I had a chance to get into it in a much broader way than just short form content and social and digital content. I got a chance to get into it from a perspective of making feature films and making, you know, making scripted television series and shows and documentaries and podcasts and many, many different things. In addition to, we do a lot of short form stuff as well, but um, you know, for me, it was the ultimate combination of I get to be in sports in the heart of sports, but I get to be, you know, telling stories and, and, and still get that piece of the entertainment world or the Hollywood world that, you know, I, I, I kind of like the Guggenheim. But, you know, now that I can combine it with sports, I love it. So that's the ultimate trick. Yeah. And, and that's what the podcast is basically all about, too. Right? It's a storytelling podcast about someone's career and the learnings on the back of it. And, and you've come back into your entrepreneur part as well you know after sort of almost 14 years or it looks like here where you've been more uh, working at, in the corporate world um, how does that feel being back and now in charge and, and doing your own thing I mean I always wanted to always wanted to and it was just trying to find the right thing to mm-hmm. go back to right and so you know there was nothing better for me you know I spent you know I spent the better part of a decade being my own boss and owning my own thing and Absolutely. you know it was it was you know, it was the most um, exciting feeling for me, you know, even when the times were tough and you were wondering if you had enough money to make payroll, you know, it was like, you know, it's, it's, it it is almost the epitome of what it was like to be an athlete. You know, it was like, look, it's on me. I have to perform. Like I have to work harder. I have to go learn new skills. I have to do things that are going to help me succeed. Um, You know, the one advantage of working for big companies is you get a chance to have resources to do things that you may not be able to do as a small business owner. And so you, you know, you get, you get a chance to manage my budgets at Madison Square Garden. The NBA were, you know, were monumental compared to what I was used to at, at small companies. But 
at the same token, like I was hankering to get back and be my own boss or at least be in a partnership where we had some freedom to run, you know, can be completely entrepreneurial, can kind of implement the things and the, and the processes and best practices that I that, that I've learned over the years and felt were the most advantageous without having anyone telling me, you know, hey, I don't really want to do that right now or no, we don't have the budget to do that right now. It's like if I want to do it, I got to go make the budget happen. Then then it's on me. I got to go work be smart and, and and have some ingenuity to figure out how to how to support it but then i then i'll go do it so it's uh, it's fantastic i love it uh, and i mean you know for all intents and purposes game one is a is a startup right you guys are about a year plus old um and uh, you know you may be a startup with a lot of firepower but uh, you, you are still a, a very young company um you know, and you, you use the word elevated content. Uh, so tell me a yep. bit more about what does it really means to you? What is elevated content? Yeah, we, you know, we, we, we've been coining that phrase um, because, you know, when, when you think about um, what, you know, athletes have done a lot of short form content, some excellent, you know, much of it is excellent, but it's predominantly short form teams do very regionalized uh, content because of, you know, league rules, um, you know, in leagues, you know, in leagues do some, some incredible content. Um, you know, media companies are obviously making content, but you know, what we were trying to figure out is how do we position ourselves so that people understand exactly what we do and what, what elevated to us means is that it's a cinematic and beautiful and meaningful and cultural, but it also means that it's, it's national or international. Like, you know, there's some really incredible content done on, you know, by teams that is going to appear on a regional sports network or on a YouTube channel that may have enough, um, you know, may have enough oomph and power that it should be a national platform, but they just haven't gotten there yet. Right. And there's some athletes that have a lot of great stories to tell, but they don't have the, the knowledge or wherewithal to figure out like, how do I actually take that idea and, and bring it somewhere that I can have a very meaningful cinematic experience at a national level or an international level. And, and so we're, we're a bridge between, you know, sports and Hollywood, we, you know, in a, in a couple different ways. One, we just, we have a pathway for people to tell those stories and, and get elevated to a place where we've got these beautiful, you know, things coming out on, 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 on big national platforms uh, like like networks or studios or streamers or you know what have you, mm-hmm. um, and and you know and at the same token, um, you know we work really hard with our projects to connect Hollywood to sports. So whether it's the greatest storytellers in the world or Hollywood people, right? They're making these great, incredible movies and TV series and shows and movies and blah blah blah. And so how do we connect those people who are also many 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 of them are also sports fans? So how do we you know, appeal to their sports fandom and their, and their, you know, fanaticism for their, maybe the team they grew up rooting for or the sport that they love and kind of bring them into the sports realm or bring the sports realm into their realm so that we're connecting those dots and, and really getting the best IP that sports has to offer, you know, that, that people are sitting on and not optimizing with the best storytellers and how do we put that together? And that's ultimately kind of the core positioning and ultimately we'll end up with elevated content. You know, we'll end up with the very premier, beautiful, impactful, and wide-ranging as possible as we can create. Right. Yeah, and, and wide-ranging clearly is. I mean, reading what uh, you know, what, what is there publicly out there, and, and I recently I think you shared some sort of an article. Um, it really is from feature film all the way to short-form uh, branded content, even, I guess, podcast. Uh, but where is the focus right now? I mean, or are you really trying to do everything, which is always hard to do, I guess? Um, I think the way we've simplified it is, you know, let's find the story first, right? Let's figure out what the story is first. And then then we can figure out where that should live. Okay. And so if the story is big enough and long enough and has enough power, like it can become a feature film. If it's if it's an infant, if it's if it's still strong and in and beautiful, but you know, let's maybe start it as a podcast and see if we can grow it. You know, and then somewhere in between, it's like we're you know, so you know, we 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 you know, we we fancy ourselves as storytellers, and the the format is the format. We'll figure that out as we go. And you know, when you look at our when you look at our development slate, we have you know, in total, we've identified probably 120 projects that we have in some level of development, but there's probably 40 of them that are. Like we're nurturing along toward, you know, either have sold or toward sale. Mm-hmm. And, you know, those 40 are probably 
10 feature films, uh, 10, 10 scripted things, you know, or five scripted things, 15 unscripted things and five podcasts, you know, so it, there is a blend. It. it, it, you know, it, it, we have a, a range of different specialists. We have people that develop scripted programming. We have people that develop unscripted programming. So it just depends what we identify. And if, it, if, if something's identified as a documentary, we give it to one of the developers that do, that do more unscripted documentary style stuff. If we think it's a scripted, you know, we bring it to an expert that understands how to source writers and, and then ultimately directors and actors and puts together a, a piece of scripted programming. So um, I love the variety. Like I, I love the diversity. It gives us a chance to, you know, to, to, to spread our wings in a number of different channels, which is always fun, you know, for an entrepreneur. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, I love that part. That's exactly what I do. <laughs> um, now what I was going to ask, uh, how do you, and it comes to picking the story, which is what you said, where at the end of it, it all starts. Are you approaching an athlete where you go and look this, I know we know this guy he has an amazing story and, and we want to dig in or what's the process here? Yeah, no, it's a combination. I mean, we are, constantly you know researching and looking for opportunities ideas we're looking to option books or plays or life rights and so we're we're constantly you know seeking you know where and then we're figuring out where those stories live and if it, in a, and if they live with an athlete or they live at a team or they live at a league then we put a, together a treatment and go to them and say we really want to work with you on trying to bring this to life we can work out some kind of you know financial arrangement but like we we really want to be you know partners with you on the intellectual property and in some cases we pitch those things and you know i had a, an instance yesterday where we pitched a professional team for ideas that we thought might be interesting And by the end of the call, we had a fifth idea that was better than the four combined that we're now going to focus on um, that came out of a brainstorm. You know, one of the one of the people on the other side was like, how about this? And then we just started to riff on it. And now we're back writing the treatment up for, you know, for um, the fifth idea. And we're putting the other four in the drawer and saying, maybe we'll come back to those. Maybe we won't need to. So it's 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 really a case by case you know, sometimes athletes or teams come to us and say, we, we have this, you know, we, 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 we want to tell this story or we want to buy these rights. Can you work with us to do that? Um, and, uh, you know, and we, you know, then we, we go and, and, and use our expertise as, as storytellers to bring that together and always in conjunction with the partner. So whether it's a, an athlete or a, or a team, it's a, it's a completely collaborative process. We're not, we're not necessarily buying IP and then, you know, going away in the lab and creating it on our own. We, we really want to make it as integrated as we possibly can. Yeah. Awesome. And, and you know, and we're, I think we all know it always needs something which sort of puts it on the radar and people to start really, I mean, sports movies have been out there forever and I'm one of the biggest fans. I love, you know, they, I've probably been in tears in most of them, but uh, I would say the last dance might've come uh, quite at an opportune time for you as well, right? Because clearly yeah. it took this whole genre out to a new level, especially now where we don't have live sports as much. Um, your thoughts on that? I'd love to hear. Yeah, I think, you know, I think what, um, you know, the the quarantine of the pandemic has done is it, it changed uh, consumption habits, you know, mm. which I think I think many of them will be permanent. Right. The way people consume content, the kind of content they want to consume uh, just in general it, it has been totally kind of transformed uh, when it comes to sports. Yes. I mean, we all as sports fans have missed you know, watching live sports, it's been terrible not to have that understandably, understandably so, but it's, it's very difficult. And so I think when last dance hit, it was a break from, you know, it was a break from the, the, uh, the doldrums of not having, you know, newness in sports. And so having this incredible story of the most, you know, arguably the greatest and if not the most prolific athlete that we've all ever seen, um, and getting a behind the scenes look, but what it, what it did was it, it satiated our thirst for sports, but it also showed us that, Hey, this, like these stories are maybe as compelling as the games, you know, like, like getting behind the scenes and maybe there's room for more and more of these. So yeah, the, you know, we had nothing to do with last dance, but like, I'm, you know, I'm a fan of all sports content. So kudos to the, the folks who put it together, but yes, it, it acted as a bellwether for us to go out and have many, many conversations about unscripted programming documentaries and talk shows and, and reality shows and game shows and things that, you know, had been taken for taken for granted in the industry of sports, not in other industries, but in the sports industry. And now, you know, it quickly are a celebrated for art form 
form, right? Where people want more stories, they want more documentaries, they want more behind the scenes and access. And so, yeah, I, I think with the change in consumption habits and kind of the awakening to this form of storytelling, it, it you know, we couldn't be at a better cross, you know, intersection than we are right now. Yeah, I, I have no doubt that uh, in the last dance, some would, uh, it was this sort of, You know, it might have been something which is just nicely came for you guys, uh, and, and now we'll kick it off even more. Um, now you've, you're already working with on a couple of bigger projects, and I know you, there's a few names uh, you've sort of publicly mentioned from uh, James Harden to Danica Patrick. Uh, can you talk a bit more specifically on on a couple of examples of exactly what what you guys are doing there? Yeah, I mean the interesting part for us is uh, you know if you look at the back of my business card, it says sports, culture, and stories, and so what we're ultimately seeking are, are stories that are meaningful culturally. Um, you know, and, and, you know, at times we'll do sports for sports, but for the most part, we're looking to figure out like, how does the story that we're telling about an athlete, about a team, about a situation, about a game, about a season, how does that have a broader impact on society and on culture? Mm -hmm. Um, so Danica Patrick, for instance, great, you know, great race car driver, female, you know, competing against males, like in one of the few athletes in the world that, you know, female athletes in the world that actually, you know, would compete against men day in and day out Absolutely. and held her own for many, many years. Um, and also as a dynamic personality, you know, in, in many different ways, you know, as a business person, as a, as a media personality, um, you know, as a spokesperson for health and wellness an endorser of brands and products. And so we, you know, we approached Danica with this idea that we do a, you know, a, a show about gender equality, about about women that that compete in a man's world and succeed. And how do they do it? What are the secret sauces and mm. what what obstacles do they face and continue to face and and really create kind of a narrative over the course of hopefully many years of, you know, how women you know, how women succeed and how they thrive and how they, you know, and how they, um, you know, are able to further not just themselves, but, you know, but, but culture. Right. And so, you know, that is a magazine style show that we're packaging right now. And, uh, Danica will be the host and we'll talk to people, the range of people from politicians to business people to, you know, to other athletes, to, um, you know, to, to just, a, you know, regular, even regular, you know, everyday women that succeed in, in jobs that you would think are meant for men and okay. showing the world that, Hey, you know, there, equality is not an aspiration. It's a, it's, it's, it's something that has been achieved and we just need to do more of it. So, so, uh, so she will be the host as in she will do the interviews. Yeah, she will do, she will be the host and right. she'll be an executive producer on it okay. as well. So, um, You know, so a good a good transition for her in post racing career in in really turning up the you know the volume on her you know on her uh, media personality and, yeah, and kind of broadcast. Brand. Yeah. Exactly. So, and and this is what we talking about half an hour show or sort of longer, shorter. What what, what are we talking about here? We're programming it as an hour long show, three interviews okay. per show. So you know you're you're talking about three different women that that will you know she'll be on site you know, going to the places where they are and embedding herself into their worlds and understanding how they tick and what challenges they faced and still face. And, uh, you know, it, it should be, you know, I think it's going to be really, it's going to be really compelling content, but it's also going to be really meaningful content. It's time that, you know, we, we put some flags in the ground, whether it's about, you know, uh, gender equality or race equality or, you know, ethnic equality. I mean, it's time for, you know, for us to, To, to stand up and if we can play a role in that and you know and have a mouthpiece or a you know a, a, a bullhorn that says you know people you need to pay attention to this stuff um we're glad to do it i love it oprah winfrey watch out Dan yeah. danica patrick is coming awesome um now to cut to sort of follow-up question from there number one is um obviously in your previous careers you did a lot of work with broadcasters uh, you know smg has its own you know uh, platforms etc um where is your what's your target right now is it really you know from the traditional broadcast to of course ott and and all the short forms on twitches etc uh, how do you go you know where are you placing content um or are you just are you talking to everyone everyone you know 
I would say, you know, if you look back, you turn the clock back five or six years, you had, you know, you had f- five or six major national buyers of content, right? You had, you know, your your ESPN and HBO Sports and NBC Sports and, you know, and and then you, you had a collection of, you know, smaller, not paying very much. And you fast forward, you know, five years and you have 50 buyers of, of premium content, you know, whether it's streamers or whether it's, you know, much more powerful offshoots of, you know, of of primary networks or whether it's the cable networks that have now multiplied, um, you know, HBO is HBO Max. And, you know, there's just more and more and more people. And now you have podcasters. So you have, you know, what used to be radio networks are now, you know, potentially sports podcasting networks. And, you know, and then the social media has grown so significantly that there's some real, you know, there's some real distribution power in even on the social media side. So it goes back to, what's the what's the story and therefore what's the format and then therefore how do we target what kind of distribution we want so it, it's it all kind of ladders up where it's like look we're not going to take a something that has the potential to be a feature film and try to make it a podcast you know sure. now we might make a feature film that we go to a studio and partner with and then we develop a shoulder program that's a podcast about the movie yeah. but Ultimately, it starts with what is the story and what's the best form for that story. And then that will dictate kind of what your distribution strategy is. So, we'll, you know, we are already across multiple distribution channels, you know, with multiple formats. And I think over time it'll be, you know, the time will tell, you know, but it's, you know, frankly, it's, you know, where where's the most demand? We'll chase it. So. Got it. Yeah, makes uh, makes sense. Uh, and in terms of funding, um, you're using the Hollywood model. Um, you you create you're raising funds against a particular project. This whatever they call slates, etc. Is that sort of your model you're following, or you have a pool of funding there through a fund, or or how does it work? Combination of things. I mean, we have you know we we raised money. Uh, we'll continue to raise money. Um, over time, especially as the company continues to scale like it has been, um, we will invariably do a few slate deals, and, you know, and, and do third party financing on particular projects. Um, but in, in addition to that, we're going to do a lot of I think a lot of our funding is actually going to come through brand partnerships. You know, okay. uh, what, I'm, what I'm seeing is corporations are, you know, I, I think we're, we're seeing an equally uh, monumentous kind of transition happening in brand marketing where, um, you know, brands would buy spots and dots and kind of spend a lot of money on, you know, on, on 30 second spots or on, you know, ad bankers on websites. And I think what we're seeing now happen is that brands are realizing they also need to be producers. Um, they also need to be owners of IP. They also need to be integrators. Um, and you know, it's still important is the advertising, but but the dynamics are changed, and brands are you know are involving themselves in kind of the content creation and distribution process like they never have before. And I think, you know, one thing that's unique about us is you know we have a very traditional filmmaker in Basil who you know has made you know billions of dollars worth of box office happen. So mm. you know, check that box. You know, my other partner Michael Smith comes from you know more the talent side and you know being in you know being a host and, a, and an interviewer and, a, and an anchor and but he also is a very accomplished unscripted producer um, and and very good in you know kind of the the short form side of the fence. And then my world is more the brand world. And so you kind of put all those pieces together. And you figure out like, all right, brand spending money, um, you know, and Basil needs money to produce movies and TV shows. Well, how do we start partnering with those folks up who have very deep pockets, but, you know, but haven't really optimized their place in the kind of the, the content ecosystem. And so I, I think you're, we're going to see a change over time. Hopefully we're part of leading that change. Um, but I think you're going to see a different way brands spend in the space and where the, where the return is coming from. And in some cases, look, brands need to need to invest in some of this content because they need to show their stakeholders that they're investing in things that matter that are meaningful that are culturally relevant and not just buying ads on different platforms i think you know you don't always need to build brand equity through volume sometimes you build it through value and you know it's really about you know having the right message and the right approach to the right stakeholders 
Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, I mean, let's take Red Bull as a you know extreme example, right? They're, they're not just putting their logo on things; they are owning the IP and, and on the back of it, creating value. So they might not not everyone might have the budget and uh, and the firepower of, of Red Bull, but uh, I think what you're talking about and, and letting brands in coming in, maybe having some slice of the IP and on the back of it having completely different monetization models. Uh, I think that's exactly what the world needs right now. You know, you think of you know a big brand who spends you know hundreds of dollars in advertising a year and some yeah. even more than that you know if they put 12 million bucks into a movie and the movie was a huge success they act they'll actually get the, the similar brand bang for the buck that they would have gotten um you know advertising somewhere else but they also may have a piece of the action in the movie and so they actually right. can pay themselves back and probably yes. profit on that investment so they can then turn around and invest even more than they would have in other content projects that will garner them, you know, even more brand equity. So it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy Absolutely. where, you know, they, you know, ultimately paying for themselves to advertise, you know, making money on advertising, which is a novel idea, but I think doable. So, yeah, yep, I get it. I think that's, uh, I love it. It's brilliant. Uh, and it's a beautiful way of pretty much everything you've done in your career from branding to selling, of course, and now you in in the content space, they're creating all that. So uh, I can I can see why you're having fun there. <laughs> it's, yeah, I mean, look, it's awesome. Every project, you know, the, if you look at the projects we're packaging and putting out there, um, you know, some are getting bought and some are produced already, and some are you know waiting to be bought, and ultimately we're in kind of development mode. But when I look at them from top to bottom, I, as a fan, remove myself as a principal in in, a, in the company as a fan, I'm like, I can't wait to see that. I can't wait to see that. I can't wait to you know to listen to that. I can't wait to go to the theater and watch that movie. Mm -hmm. And so. You know, it, it's exciting from that perspective because, you know, as sports lovers like we are and fanatics like we are, like we've always consumed whatever sports comes along. And, you know, and so I, I as a fan, I love what we're doing. And then when I layer myself in as somebody who owns part of the company and, you know, and obviously helps run the day to day of the company, then, you know, it becomes doubly exciting because, you know, it's it's you know, it's 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 mine, you know, it's my baby. And I, you know, I, I'm getting to watch my baby grow up and have success. And that's, uh, you know, that's a, a really, a really uh, fun thing to be a part of. Yeah, I can see that. Now, obviously, from what I know, uh, the studios are a bit uh, stuck right now, you know, movies are not being produced. How are you guys getting around that, that there are a whole bunch of restrictions right now um, in terms of production? Yeah, I mean, look, we're you know we've shifted a little bit. We've got some stuff going on, like um, in a in a very skeletal crew kind of way. So we're doing whatever we can to get out there and create some of that stuff. But we've shifted kind of our focus from, all right, if we can't actually go out and put a crew out and produce something, like let's let's shift and start developing more ideas and start uh, packaging more things, so that when we do get you know when we do get kind of the clearance. Maybe we're, you know, slightly behind on a production schedule, but we're further ahead because we have 20 more projects than we might have had because we use this time wisely and efficiently to kind of create new new ideas. So it's been it's been incredibly uh, uh, beneficial to us to be in quarantine in a way, you know, because okay. we we've gotten a chance to to really um, a you know think about um, you know think about the stories that we want to tell do a lot of research and we we've had a lot of direct access to the sports industry that normally wouldn't be as direct only because everyone would be busy playing games or traveling yeah. or working on deals and now it's kind of like all right like can you talk tomorrow which might take two or three weeks normally now it's yes. you know tomorrow so it's That's uh, true you know, that part for us has been we've you know we've shifted our, our you know the way we're doing things in the in the short term like like many 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 other companies are are doing but we're you know trying to find the silver lining and not being able to throw a crew out and start filming again. Yeah, yeah no, no, that makes sense. And so, you know, which would be the first one uh, which we can expect to come out? Is there one particular one you can mention already? Um, I can't mention it because we haven't released it yet. Like we okay. haven't released the PR behind it, but it's a feature film that we wrapped before COVID. It's phenomenal. Um, it is, it is going to be, uh, I, I think a big hit has a huge movie star in the middle of it. It's a sports theme. Um, we're really proud of it. Um, but we're, we're waiting to do the release on it for, for a bit, but we have, you know, we have a, a couple documentary films that we got largely in the queue before COVID. We have, um, we're in we're in process right now. I, we mentioned in our release the Deshaun Watson project we're working on called Face of a Franchise, which is 
a really cool idea kind of chronicling what it takes for a star player you know the pressures and and uh, highs and lows that it takes to kind of be a face of a franchise or a star player mm-hmm. um which we're you know he's he's phenomenal and he's so intelligent and smart and just you know hard working and you know it's just so fun to you know kind of be you know be you know be a fly on the wall to to what it takes for him to do what he does and you know it's it's admirable it's exciting and so we're capturing as much of that stuff right now as we can but that one will come out um you know we have the a couple of the hardened projects we have, that we mentioned in our, our release that was out last week which was um you know they're they're great projects to two one is um a, a, a beautiful documentary about basketball in la and one is uh you know one is really about kind of the the nuances of of great moves in in basketball like and where where did they where did they form who who was the the author of those moves you know the killer crossover the the dream shake the up and under those kinds of things so the step back you know so bringing um, your own basketball experience back in there too a little bit i'm assuming (laughs) full circle I I, uh, I I try to sound like the expert as much as I can, but you know sometimes you know when you're when you're brainstorming with NBA players, you you take the back seat really quickly. So oh, well, you know you you had your own playing career that, which is awesome. Uh, now the the movie you were talking about, uh, are you is it like a Netflix or you are more the traditional uh, you know release route? Yeah, theatrical release. Uh, okay. You know, meant to go wide to many theaters. Uh, we'll see what happens. I mean, obviously with. Uh, you know, COVID-19 and quarantines, you know, it was supposed to hit theaters this winter. Um, you know, we'll see, we'll see what happens and, you know, whether we hold it back or whether we transition into more of a streamer play, uh, we'll see. Awesome. Craig, we, we could go on forever here. Uh, I love the conversation. You have such a obviously amazing and colorful background and, and what you're doing right now is uh, equally exciting. But uh, we do have to watch our time uh, on your end yep. and for our listeners. So I want to thank you here, first of all. Uh, I'd like you to please say hello to Basil from my son. He's a huge John Wick fan. Uh-huh. <laughs> so he loves these movies. Uh, and uh, and he actually introduced them to me. I have to admit, I wasn't that familiar with them initially, but I, we've now watched them all together. So it's a good entertainment there for us and um, enjoy your your late afternoon or evening there in uh, in Hollywood uh, in in LA and uh, really enjoyed our conversation yeah thank you so much for having me it was a lot of fun and uh, let's do this again sometime definitely great The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Lure Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Lure. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.